welcome to the Primary Ride Home for Wednesday, May 29th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Higgins. Today, the DNC increases its qualifying requirements for the third set of debates, key moments from Harris's MSNBC Town Hall, a brief glimpse at Republican primary polling four years ago today, and a look at how close presidential elections have become since the late 80s. Here's what you missed today from the campaign trail. First up, some debate news. Now, on this show, we have covered the rules set by the DNC to participate in the first two sets of debates. Those are coming up in June and July. And early this morning, the DNC announced that for the debates after those debates, the rules are going to change. They're getting more than twice as restrictive. So although I've said this before, I'm going to make it quick. The rules to get into the first two rounds of debates this June and July are that you have to meet one of the following two criteria. Either register 1% support in three major polls from a list of polls the DNC considers valid, or get 65,000 donors with at least 200 donors in each of 20 different states. Now, ideally, you would meet both of those thresholds, but technically either one qualifies you. Having both virtually guarantees you a spot. Now, in a press release early this morning, the DNC says those rules still hold for June and July, but the next debate, set for September, will have tougher requirements. For those, candidates must meet both tests, and both tests have gotten much harder. First, the candidates must reach 2% in four major polls over the summer. Second, the candidate must have 130,000 individual donors, including at least 400 donors in each of 20 states. According to the AP, there are about six candidates who already meet those new standards, and another six or so who could do so with some work, And the rest, well, that's the challenge. In a statement, Erin Hill, the executive director of the Democratic donation organization Act Blue, explains her perspective. Quote, Candidates who will be prepared to take on Trump in the general should already be working to build programs that can bring in 130,000 donors by the second round of debates. End quote. Now, there will still be 20 spots open on the stage for those September debates, so it is technically possible that we'll still have 20 or more major candidates in the race and vying for those spots at that point. But honestly, I don't see that happening. I think the polling requirement will be the harder standard to meet. It is tough to imagine 20 candidates each reaching 2% or more, meaning that 40% of the overall Democratic electorate is still devoted to smaller players in a super broad field at that time. This is a clear attempt by the DNC to reduce the number of viable candidates as the summer wears on, so as voters start to tune in, they have a smaller set of choices. As I mentioned yesterday, we currently have a full slate of 20 candidates for the June debates, with 12 having met both current criteria. There are four more candidates who could meet one or both criteria, so there will likely be some tie-breaking happening to see who gets a spot next month, and then a lot of tie-breaking for the July debates. Okay, so to round this out, here's a reminder of when and where all this stuff happens. The first debates are June 26th and 27th in Miami, airing on NBC News, MSNBC, and Telemundo. The second set are on July 30th and 31st in Detroit, airing on CNN. The third set, that's what we've been talking about today, are on September 12th and maybe 13th, if necessary, on ABC News, Univision, and Hulu Live. A location for those debates has not yet been set. 
Last night, Senator Kamala Harris went on MSNBC for, you guessed it, a town hall. Now, I love town hall segments because we get to hear from candidates directly over a long span of time. This town hall was held at Wofford College in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and it was hosted by Lawrence O'Donnell of MSNBC. The event was held in an auditorium with an additional set of audience members on the stage behind Harris and O'Donnell in like a semicircle. In the very first exchange, O'Donnell went straight to the big news of the day, and Harris's response got to her big proposal of the day, plus one of the biggest issues, the Senate, that's going to play out in the election. Listen in. Let's go straight to the breaking news of the day. The okay. uh, United States Supreme Court issues a new decision on abortion. It's a confusing decision for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, they ignored part of an Indiana law, left it for a later decision, upheld part of an Indiana law, more right. restriction uh, on abortion. Let's right. get your reaction to that. Lawrence, look, um, I think it's very clear uh, that, and it has not changed, that uh, women's ability to have access to reproductive health is under attack in America. It's under attack. And what we have seen from Alabama to Georgia, you can go just a variety of states, legislatures, state legislatures, are fundamentally attacking a woman's right to make decisions about her own body. And let's understand what this means. Are we gonna go back to the days of back alley abortions? Women died before we had Roe v. Wade in place. And so I'm gonna tell you, on this issue, I'm kinda done, because here's how I feel about it, guys. Let me tell you. Here's the thing. There are states that keep passing these laws, and so and when elected, I'm gonna put in place and require that states that have a history of passing legislation that is designed to, to prevent or, or limit a woman's access to reproductive health care, that those laws have to come before my Department of Justice for a review and approval, and until we determine that they are constitutional, they will not take effect. How, that, that sounds like it needs 60 votes in the United States Senate. You know what? There, everything that we need to do is going to require 60 votes in the United States Senate, which is why I would say to everybody, 2020 is about the White House. It's also about the United States Senate. The other okay, so I have two things to comment on here. First, Harris is talking about her Reproductive Rights Act, which, as she says, would force certain states to take certain categories of issues before the DOJ, before they are enacted into state law. Here's a section from the beginning of that policy proposal. Quote, similar to the pre-clearance requirement of the Voting Rights Act, Harris will require for the first time that states and localities with a history of violating Roe v. Wade obtain approval from her Department of Justice before any abortion law or practice can take effect. End quote. All right, so you heard Harris speak to that in the clip I just played. This is one of the things she is best qualified to do, to create enforceable legal policy, given that her career has been, you know, as a lawyer and now a senator. She responded to a further question about whether this plan would be struck down by the Supreme Court because the court invalidated a similar part of the Voting Rights Act back in 2013. Well, Harris came right back because she is familiar with that decision and pointed out that the Supreme Court, in that decision, set a time window on when laws like this can be applied, and her proposal is explicitly designed to pass that court test by using the specified time window. 
So again, one of Harris's superpowers is a deep understanding of case law, and she is using it. Okay, the second thing about her answer gets right at the most important issue that almost nobody is talking about. The Senate in 2020. If Democrats win the presidency in 2020, but do not take control of the Senate, it is hard to imagine any major legislation actually happening. A Republican Senate would just block legislation they don't approve of. That's kind of what the Democratic House is doing right now. So having Harris highlight this in her first answer is vital. This is a key narrative that Democrats have to focus on in the general election, and we might as well start talking about it right now in the primary. Okay, so what else happened in this town hall? I'm going to read from an article by Dylan Scott in Vox summarizing the event. Quote, The town hall discussion was meandering, to put it generously. Harris fielded vague questions from MSNBC host Lawrence O'Donnell about the news of the day, including Mitch McConnell's comments about filling a Supreme Court vacancy in an election year, and GOP Representative Justin Amash's call for impeachment. The show ended with a perhaps tongue-in-cheek audience query about whether Harris would make MSNBC host Rachel Maddow her vice president. It was not the deepest policy debate. End quote. And that's reasonably accurate, though I think it's a matter of style on the network's part. There was quite a bit of substance to this debate, but being on MSNBC, there was also a lot of bringing in clips from other reporters and clips of the current president and stuff like that. Also, the balance of questions from O'Donnell versus questions from the audience was simply different than we've seen on CNN or Fox News in this cycle. I'm not saying this is better or worse, it's just different. The key takeaway is that Harris was consistently strong and disciplined in her responses. She stuck to her messages, her answers consistently roused the audience, and she handled even the silly stuff like the Maddow question gracefully. O'Donnell did a good job of handling follow-up questions, and Harris handled those as well. It is what you would expect at this point from a major candidate. So there are two other key moments I want to highlight from the hour-long town hall event. First is on the issues of immigration and family separation. Prior to this, O'Donnell played a clip of President Trump saying that the U.S. is full. I'm going to skip that part for time and go to the relevant part of the clip moments later. Listen in. And on the issue of immigration, he has also defied who we are morally and who we say we are to the world. We have always presented ourselves as being a nation of strength with strong arms, that when people are fleeing harm, we will embrace them. But look at what has happened with this administration. There are children who are fleeing murder capitals of the world. Let's be clear about this. Imagine a mother who makes a decision to pay a coyote to transport her child across the entire country of Mexico, facing unknown peril. She does that because she believes for that child to stay where they are is worse. But what does this president do? He virtually looks at those children and says, go back to where you came from. What do we have in this president? A policy that was about taking children, separating them from their parents, and calling it border security. No, that was a human rights abuse being committed by the United States government, and it is against the morals and the values of who we are as a nation. Okay, so that's an answer in terms of morals and values. Those are specific words Harris uses at the end. But later in the hour, she also talked about comprehensive immigration reform something that, again, would involve the Senate. 
However, back in 2013, a major immigration bill did pass the Senate with 68 votes and then died in the House. Now, since then, both chambers have changed quite a bit, and the overall tenor of the immigration debate has as well. So yet again, there is a practical question underlying all of this, and that has to do with how you'd get it done. And the answer is, you need Senate support, whether that is a Democratic or Republican-controlled body. Either way, a president does need Congress to agree on stuff. You may be noticing a theme here. Now, the third and final clip I'll play here also involves, surprise, the Senate. Here's the first question Harris was presented from an audience member. Now, I'm trying to minimize the amount of audio I'm using from the town hall, so I'm going to summarize the question and just play a portion of the answer. So a man stands at a microphone and explains that he is, quote, an American of Cuban descent, end quote, and that he and his fiancée have traveled all the way from Charlotte, North Carolina, to attend the event. He then criticizes the current administration and asks a two-part question. First part. Does Harris support a full impeachment effort, knowing that it will likely fail in the current Senate? And second part, he asks whether Harris would continue to prosecute alleged crimes by Trump and his cabinet after they leave office. Here's how Harris responds. So yes, I do support and have advocated for um, us going through the process um, toward impeachment and seeing that through. I absolutely do. But you're right to mention the United States Senate, because uh, while I am calling for us to to go through that process, I also am fully aware that um, the Senate in its current configuration, I doubt very seriously, will actually vote to impeach this president, given its current configuration, which is that the majority is run by Republicans who consistently, be it on his wall, be it on Affordable Care Act, on so many issues, have stood with this president even when what he has done is so clearly and blatantly wrong, and in many cases in the worst interest, not the best interest of their constituents. But on the issue of impeachment, let's be clear. You know, I've read the Mueller report. And they outline in that report, and it was a team of of some of the best career people in the Department of Justice who are a part of that, career people who had been in the Department of Justice. There are at least 10 separate incidents of obstruction of justice. I am also clear from reading what he wrote in that report that the only reason they did not return an indictment against this president on obstruction of justice is because of an opinion from the Department of Justice that suggests that you cannot indict a sitting president. But there is no question that the evidence supports a prosecution of that case. So taking it to the point of your next question, absolutely. Listen, I, I believe that there needs to be transparency, there needs to be accountability, There is a clear track record of this president and members of his administration obstructing justice, not to mention what we have seen from the current attorney general of the United States, who I questioned in the connection with the Judiciary Committee, who clearly thinks his job is to represent the president and his peculiar interests as opposed to representing the people of the the country in which we live. So there is a lot of work to do, and I plan on seeing it through. Now, there is more, and you can check it all out on MSNBC. Harris spoke about her support for Medicare for All, pay equity for women, middle-income tax credits, and a bunch more. There are also a bunch of relevant clips on Harris's Twitter feed, and links to all of that are in the show notes. Man. 
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Next up, here's a quick one. As I often say, we are dealing right now with early polling. So the polls I report on, even those with the best methodology, are fundamentally just, you know, early. Time moves in one direction, at least in this universe, and the reality is that many voters have not yet tuned in to this primary election cycle. Now I know that you, listening to this show right now, are not those people, but many of your neighbors probably are. Now, to underscore that point, let's look at a tweet from Neil Stevens posted early this morning. For what it's worth, Stevens is a self-described conservative. In the tweet, he lists the polling averages from May 29th, 2015, in other words, precisely four years ago today, when the Republicans were engaged in a similar large-field early primary, and lists the percentages of the top candidates. Let me read you that list, and while I'm reading it, just, you know, think about how many of these people are either the president or the vice president or even on your radar right now. Jeb Bush, 15%. Scott Walker, 13%. Marco Rubio, 12%. Ben Carson, 9%. Mike Huckabee, 9%. Rand Paul, 9%. Ted Cruz, 8%. Chris Christie, 5%. Donald Trump, 5%. John Kasich, 2%. Rick Perry, 2%. And Rick Santorum, 2%. All right. You might notice that that list covers 12 candidates with the top five collectively holding 58% of the overall votes. And Trump was in ninth place polling at less than half of, you know, Scott Walker and a third of Jeb Bush. Oh, and by the way, at the time of that poll, Trump had not yet announced his candidacy. As Stevens notes in his next tweet in the thread, quote, none of the top six candidates made it late into the race. 7, 9, and 10 did. End quote. Of course, those three candidates are Cruz, Trump, and Kasich. In that early poll, Kasich had just 2%. So look, take heart if you are somebody who is devoted to a Democratic candidate with low polling numbers right now. This is pretty strong evidence that early days are just that. We've got a long way to go. Yes, Democratic and Republican primaries work differently in terms of how candidates get delegates, but polling methods are quite consistent across both groups. And last up today, I have a reading recommendation for you. It is a relatively short piece at 538 by Jeffrey Skelly, who asks in the title, quote, are blowout presidential elections a thing of the past? End quote. 
In the article, he examines every presidential election since the end of the Civil War, which is when the current two-party system was essentially locked in. Though, to be clear, the politics of those two parties have changed a lot since then. Skelly is focusing on the margin of victory for the winning presidential candidate from each of those elections. What is interesting is that in the period from 1988 to 2016, in other words, the post-Reagan years, quote, the difference between the vote shares of the Democratic and Republican nominees was in the single digits. That is the longest stretch of such elections since the Civil War, surpassing a run of seven straight single-digit margins from 1876 to 1900. End quote. He provides an infographic showing what this looks like and discusses how polarization between the parties has ebbed and flowed over the years. I strongly encourage you to check out the article. It'll take you three minutes to read. It is the last link in the show notes. Well, that is it for one more episode of The Primary Ride Home. I have been your host, Chris Higgins. You can always find me on Twitter, at Chris Higgins. Well, I didn't quite make it to watching the O'Rourke documentary last night on HBO. I'm going to go check that out as soon as I post the show today. So no spoilers on Twitter, okay? Like, I don't know if he wins that Senate race or if he gets to sit on the Iron Throne or any of that stuff. All right, as always, thanks for listening, and I will talk to y'all tomorrow. Tomorrow.